Now there we go again, the third time in a decade so far in this series where the representative of a foreign power or some individual tells somebody that they're about to be betrayed, they're about to be double-crossed, or this head of state is about to execute your friends. We saw it with Tolbert in 1980. That's what the PRC soldiers, including Samuel Doe, were told right before they launched their coup. It may have been the catalyst, and they were probably told by Colonel Robert Gosney, the military attaché at the U.S. Embassy. We see it again with Prince Johnson in 1987 in Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso, where somebody tells him that Thomas Sankara is about to arrest all of you Liberians and extradite you back to Doe to face certain death. And then we see it in 1990, where Prince Johnson yet again is informed by a foreign power, which he could not reveal, that Doe was planning to double-cross him. But hold on a second, because when I read this over again, I was curious, and I went back to the section of Prince Johnson's TRC testimony where he's discussing this period and this alliance that he was supposed to enter with Doe. I don't know why Han, maybe it's an oversight. I didn't see it in his footnotes. I don't know why Han didn't catch this, but as it turns out, Prince Johnson reveals who told him that at the TRC hearing. And while it's possible that he said at a different time that an agent of a foreign power told him Doe was gonna double cross him. In the TRC testimony, it's not a foreign power, but it is in fact Samuel Doe's close advisor and new information minister and spokesman, the man who would replace Emmanuel Bowyer after he slipped out of the country. This man's name is Saleh Thompson. And this is Prince Johnson revealing for the first time, even though he said the guy never wanted me to use his name in public, revealing for the first time who actually tipped him off. So within that period, having contacted me, uh, Thompson came, because I was told also that once Sally Thompson was going to come to me. So Sally Thompson came to me and uh, saw the idea of a truce with Doe as uh, proposed by the embassy. And I agree. I sincerely agree. And we met him at the Douglas Church. And we discussed. And I told Thompson, well, go and tell Samedo I agree. He went to the mansion and they discussed there. And they were very happy. Because he was in golf or all sides. And the next day, Thompson came to me and told me to draft the, the peace, the truce. And I said, you drop it. He drafted it. I amended it. And then he took it to the door to see. And he brought it. But in that agreement, we agreed to John Fawcett to fire Kumo. Whether I was really in position to fire Kumo that I made to come here. Or not. Well, that was no basis to, 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 to determine that. Whether I who brought August, August 24, 1990, the peacekeeping force for all over Africa. Whether I will sign paper with Doe to fight peacekeeping force. 
Then it was a business to determine whether I would be truthful to that truth or not truthful. And we agreed that all the charges leveled against me when I fled the country for treason should be dropped. And many things we discussed of mutual understanding. And though okay it in the final draft, he okay it, he was finally tapped and brought to me. And we took it to Ecomo headquarters and gave it to them. Uh, the place where it was mentioned that we should join forces to fight Ecomo, the Ecomo saw that in the agreement. And when Sally Thompson left, they called me. They, they said they're coming to see me. They say, is it true that you and those John to fight on your side here? I say, that what we saw. But in reality, I cannot fight you. Because if, uh, you know, your military mind itself is one thing. And then if I want to go to any African country, it will not be possible if I join you to kill, to do, to kill, you know, the, the peacekeepers. So I say, that is not going to work with me. So you trust me, you depend on me. Stay there, stay there free. So that truth was signed. And in the truth, we mentioned that whenever a ranking officer from Dosa wanted to visit me, I should be notified. And the same with my group too. He should be notified. And don't give me more ammunition in our bill to fight Ekomo. I requested for more ammunition. And uh, I gave him five, I think 500 bags of rice. Because the soda was the he needed food. And so there was a schedule according to the agreement for me to visit BDC. So I visited BDC, that was the first time face to face we met after signing the truce. Where he said that the ECOMO was a CIA creation. And that he's is he's, he's being Placed under attack because the CIA uh, don't like development in Liberia. They like the American Liberian to build houses, to buy houses abroad, with a country poor money to steal and care abroad. But he though was taking ministry out of other government homes and making development. They don't like that. So they want to kill him. And he said to me, I did not stay here to fight you. I still have to say no to American Liberian rule, Charles That's why I stay here. Then I left. And another meeting was scheduled September 6th, between September 5 or 6. This time to the mansion. As time was approaching for my second visit to the mansion, I got word from Sally Thompson. Don't forget that Sadie Thompson was a mediator. And he was not prepared to agree with many things that others were telling to continue fight. He was prepared for real peace. So I got word from Sadie Thompson that uh, don't come. Don't come to the mansion. There is a plot to open a corridor from the SDA church where you enter Busekwara, you claim the information service, you go there. To the mansion, you will not see though where you're supposed to meet him. 
immediately they will open fire on you there and you will not come back with the quarter because it will be suppressive fire. I was not in the meeting. Whether this is true, not true, the first law of nature being self-preservation, I had to be serious. So I say, oh, Thompson, this is, yeah, don't call my name. And since that time, yesterday, I'm calling the name. You got a true commission we are, we are pressing. <laughs> and all along, though they not know. So they own, uh, expecting though, decided to visit the port. Because, when the peacekeepers came, they failed to pay visit on him to him. They paid to, to visit though. They paid they failed to pay because they come. So don't say, but I'm the commander in chief. And that's our way And these people say they were coming here to help me, to bring peace. How come they be here over one week, two weeks? They don't know who they call the town owner or the town chief. And they sit down there. In your area, they don't want to come to pay me courtesy call. That year, a they came to move me. Okay, I will go. One day, I will go there and deal with these people. So, Samuel do visit to the port was intended to question Ekomo as to why they came and failed to pay courtesy call. Whether they did not recognize him as a head of state. That was a visited port. I will come to that. So my visit to the mansion, I have been told that there was a plot to open corridor for me to pass and then close me up. I don't know how possible that could have been. Because I have men well equipped, tactically inclined, very strong and intelligent commandos who were willing to die for this country to die for the leader and whenever I move I move well prepared and so I abandoned my mission to the mansion I stayed on my side and Samuel Doe came that morning he came according to him when he was before me being questioned he said he sent Sally Thompson to tell me that he was coming to see me he gave me with the truth but Sally Thompson already well, he, uh, I made a deal with the peacekeeping force to take him out of the country via my, 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 ter my territory. So he was not in any more position, in position anymore to come be a messenger. So when Sally Thompson came to tell me, he did not tell me, he went straight to the peacekeeping force to take refuge. So while I was thinking that though intruded, that he violated the truth that was signed, though has sent Thompson to let me know that he was coming. But I didn't know. In my opinion, this is one of the biggest Prince Johnson bombshells at the TRC. Sally Thompson, or Sally Thompson, his first name is spelled a couple different ways, but... We can say Sally Thompson. Doe's advisor is the key man, it turns out, in all this, according to Prince Johnson. In all of my reading 
about this period, about Liberia, about the war. I'd never seen the name Sully Thompson. It's not in Han's book. It's not in the footnotes. But it is a name that has popped up. We'll get to it more in a second. We'll do a little deeper dive on Sully Thompson. But the pertinent facts are, one, he approaches Prince Johnson in August with the idea of a truce between Doe and the INPFL to fight Ecomog and Taylor. And in fact, Johnson says he went and did this without the prior knowledge of Doe. He kind of went rogue and did this. And in fact, I managed to find an LA Times article from August 21st, 1990, titled Rebel Faction Doe Agreed a Truce, which names Sully Thompson. It says, Liberian rebels who control half of the capital have agreed to a ceasefire with the government forces of President Samuel K. Doe, diplomats said Monday. Doe's closest advisor, Sully Thompson, was believed to have arranged the truce with rebel leader Prince Johnson without waiting for the president's approval, diplomats in Monrovia said. But then Prince Johnson goes on to say, before his second meeting with Doe, I believe this is on September 6th, before Prince Johnson is to go over to the executive mansion to meet with Doe, Sally Thompson calls him up and informs him and warns him, don't go, it's a trap. They're going to open up a corridor and let you in and they're going to close it up and you won't make it out of there alive. So therefore, Johnson does not show up to the second meeting. And meanwhile, keep in mind, this is the week when Ecomog starts to land. It's also the week, if you remember back to part one, Charles Gurney mentions that when Prince Johnson runs his big mouth and says he might take American hostages, that almost is like a trigger for the U.S. government to be like, all right, let's get everybody the fuck out of the U.S. Embassy and evacuate all the Americans that are left. That's when the Marines come in, they saw off the basketball hoops and land on the basketball courts and take all of the remaining embassy officials out of Liberia, uh, with the exception of a small handful. And while I can't prove this, it does strike me as odd that Prince Johnson, the erratic Prince Johnson, would run his mouth like that and provide the U.S. almost a golden opportunity at exactly the right moment to withdraw most of their mission from Monrovia. It turns out to be very fortuitous timing. We're talking about the last week in August. Now, one other thing that Prince Johnson mentions around this time in his TRC testimony is, I believe he says that before he talks about Sully Thompson, he says a foreign embassy who he's not going to name gave all of the major parties Motorola radios so that they could communicate with Prince Johnson, with Doe, and with Taylor. Unless I'm misconstruing something, I'm not sure why he neglects to name the country that did that, because I'm almost positive it was the American embassy that gave everybody Motorola radios. And as Cohen said, he met with Prince Johnson at the U.S. Embassy, so it's a little weird, given the relatively non-hostile relationship between Prince Johnson's forces and the U.S. Embassy, that suddenly he would just sort of run his mouth and say, I'm going to take a bunch of Americans hostage, which is almost like their cue to get out of Dodge. 
Now, there's one other thing to throw into the mix here, because in Han's book, he mentions that there were U.S. military advisors observed going in and out of Prince Johnson's Caldwell compound in the last week of August and the first week of September. I tried to look and see if there was any more corroboration or info I could get about that. And sure enough, Jim Bishop, in his State Department oral history, does mention a little tiny paragraph where he's talking about this uh, period at the end of August where they're evacuating people. There's very few Americans left. He says, quote, We did have some real problems with the U.S. military. The Naval Task Force arrived offshore in May. The Marines, as I said, did not come on shore until August. There were some Marine officers sent to the embassy to work with the Chargé and later Pete DeVos when he arrived in late June or early July. Some of those military officers proved very difficult to work with. They did not understand the politics of the situation. They were at times undisciplined, going into areas which they had been told were, quote, off limits and as a result, getting into difficulties. This situation is described to some extent by Dennis Jett in the book Embassies Under Siege, in which one chapter is devoted to the situation in Monrovia that summer. The most serious problem that arose with the military concerned the question of who was going to be in command of the Marines if a supplemental force were to be put into the embassy compound. For a time, there was a plan to put another 60 to 100 Marines in the compound to supplement the normal complement of guards at the embassy. This additional personnel would be ready to defend the compound in the event it came under attack. The chief of staff's J-3 operations at the time, an army lieutenant general, insisted that any supplemental marines would be under military command, not that of the ambassador. The department, on the other hand, maintained that all marines in the compound would be under ambassadorial control. Otherwise, we would have some marines under ambassadorial control and some under military control. The general was so insistent that one day we had 60 marines on an airplane sitting at National Airport on their way to Sierra Leone from where they would then be transported to Monrovia. The general kept those marines on the plane for 45 hours because the command and control issue had not been resolved to his satisfaction. Consequently, the marines never took off and ultimately were sent back to Quantico. Secretary Baker, to his credit, stood firm and insisted that the ambassador would be responsible for all Americans in the compound. He would not accept an arrangement which would have someone in Washington, thousands of miles removed from the action, micromanaging what was happening on the ground, while the ambassador tried to maintain unity of local command. So that is interesting. Jim Bishop is saying that people in the State Department on the ground were complaining that U.S. military advisors and officers that were there kept going outside of the wire into, quote, off-limits areas. And it sounds like not always getting ambassadorial approval before they did so. And also, even the tiff over the chain of command is kind of interesting, where you have the military almost trying to muscle its way in to commanding at least some of the Marines and military forces that are in Liberia at the time. There was another State Department official, I'm forgetting if it was Dennis Jett or it was another guy in this oral history, that told a colorful anecdote about getting kind of lost in Monrovia and getting stopped at government checkpoints and kind of being in a dangerous situation with a couple of Delta Force guys. So we know at least anecdotally there was Delta Force on the ground. So it's interesting that 
the Joint Chiefs of Staff kind of make a push to directly control the military contingent in Liberia at this time and kind of try to muscle out the State Department and the normal chain of command, maybe because they were doing things uh, that were covert. That's a possibility, of course. It's also interesting that although Secretary Baker stands firm and the Marines ostensibly remain under ambassadorial control, I believe the actual ambassador to Liberia, Peter John DeVos, evacuates at the end of August, leaving only the charge d'affaires, Dennis Jett. So by the beginning of September, there really isn't a lot of quote-unquote adult State Department supervision over the military contingent that is left, one could assume. But going back to Prince Johnson, the last thing you heard him say in that clip is that on the morning of September 9th, according to what Prince Johnson heard, Doe ordered Selly Thompson, as per the truce that was signed with Prince Johnson, to go notify Prince Johnson that Doe was about to go pay a visit to the Freeport area where Ecomog's headquarters were. And he was going to basically complain to Commanding General Quenu about how they had not paid a visit to the chief, to the actual sitting head of state of Liberia in the several weeks since they arrived. But, Prince Johnson says, Selly Thompson never showed up to Caldwell to warn Prince Johnson about it. Instead, Prince Johnson gets a call. I think he says he was at the Island Clinic, though that is disputed by other people. But he gets a call on his Motorola radio that Doe has just showed up at Ecomog headquarters unannounced. And Prince Johnson just assumes this is a violation of the truce. He's already heard from Sully Thompson days earlier that Doe was setting up a trap for him. And Johnson is pissed. And Johnson also says that Sully Thompson, unbeknownst to Doe, had already been talking with Ecomog about getting him out of the country and escaping. So that morning when he was sent to go warn Prince Johnson, instead, he goes straight to Ecomog headquarters. So all in all, pretty suspicious behavior. But now we finally arrived at the morning of September 9th, 1990. 9 To describe what happens on September 9th, 1990, going to switch over to Ellis's Mask of Anarchy because he gives a very vivid play-by-play. Essentially has the same information as Han, but you really get a sense of uh, the horror of what's about to happen. So here is how Ellis describes what happens on September 9th. For access to the full-length episode, subscribe to the Hour of Frequency at patreon.com slash subliminaljihad.